The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Gawler. Hi, I'm Grace Gawler and welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze for this week. I hope you all had a very uh, happy Thanksgiving and good reunions with family and friends uh, last week. And uh, today we're going to be exploring on Navigating the Cancer Maze a few issues that are surrounding the history of um, cancer medicine and particularly how mind-body medicine and uh, nutritional and environmental medicine have really come to be birthed in the last 30 to 40 years. And I think this is a very significant issue uh, to understand the basis of uh, where these uh, the traditions have broken and we have gone forth and we have created a whole lot of new branches and new paradigms of medicine. And we've talked on this show in the past about the new paradigms and particularly about personalised, patient-centred medicine, um, individualised medicine. And we're really going to have a look today at the roots of that and uh, explore how it's changed the way that we actually make decisions about cancer treatments. So uh, I hope you're going to find this show really interesting. I know in doing a little bit of research for it, I certainly did, and uh, went back over some old material from early days of uh, studying the history of medicine and the history of herbal medicine and how we actually came to be here at this point. But before we get along with that today, um, I do have a couple of emails that were um, from the last show that we did, and I'd like to address those because it's actually quite interesting in my profession that when you uh, have a particular kind of uh, patient with a particular kind of tumour come in the door and you think, my goodness, I haven't seen anyone with that kind of tumour for a long time, sometimes three, four or five people inquire or come along to see me with that tumour. And this has been the case recently. And um, I'm going to choose two letters today. Uh, one from Jenny, who says she's from British Columbia. And she wrote to me saying that her partner's been recently diagnosed with glioblastoma multiforma. 
Um, this is a particular kind of brain tumour and it's particularly aggressive. Uh, she goes on to say that her partner wants to try some alternatives, um, even medical alternatives, and can I please advise? Um, First of all, to say with this kind of a brain tumour, uh, it's the type of tumour that's very, very difficult to treat. Um, it's the type of tumour that certainly with alternative medicine um, or even complementary medicine in, in, um, in isolation, you wouldn't actually attempt to treat this type of tumour. However, those things in combination with, as we often say on this show, because we're about complementary medicine, um, when we do have those two avenues open to cancer patients, there are some quite significant options uh, that are available today for people with this type of brain tumour. And it was interesting, uh, recently I had a, a patient who I accompanied to the Halvan Clinic in Germany where I do some consulting and um, this particular patient had thought that her phone that she was using in the house, um, it was a wireless phone, it wasn't a mobile phone, but she said, I spent long hours on this phone and um, I do have the tumour on the side of my head where I used to use this phone. And she said that I often felt the heat from the phone and she spent many hours of the day actually um, talking to people on the phone because she was in a relatively isolated area, friends and family lived at a distance and uh, it was interesting to hear her say that because there's been a number of studies with the connections of holding devices uh, for long periods of time up to one's ear. So it's a bit of a reminder uh, just to break in the middle of this to say, do be careful with these um, mobile devices that you use. Um, we recommend that people use a speaker, um, something that actually plugs into the phone so the phone itself isn't actually in contact with your head. Now, there's been a lot of controversy about this, um, but I think it's better to err on the safe side because over the years I've had many of my corporate clients actually say that they felt that the overuse of a mobile phone um, close to their head was um, in part responsible for brain tumours that they'd been diagnosed with. So I've had a lot of, a lot of numbers of people and I know that's, that is anecdotal. Um, however, there's enough in the literature and enough in the anecdotes, I think, to just say a little bit careful as uh, this particular lady um, is now uh, doing and she's told her children as well, just be cautious with using these devices especially um, in young brains, actually. Um, but getting back to the um, glioblastoma multiforma, uh, in Germany, this particular lady underwent a relatively new kind of treatment for a brain tumour um, of this type, and it was called dendritic cell therapy. And it might be worth your while, um, Jenny, for you and your partner uh, to explore this. There's plenty of good sites on the internet from the medical end of things where you can have a look and see what dendritic cell therapy actually is. Um, it has been effective in this type of tumour, and it's used quite a lot in Germany um, in conjunction with viral treatments, which are... Um, harmless to the person but actually can also activate the dendritic cells to work. Now basically a dendritic cell is made from your own body uh, just in brief. It's actually uh, taken from your blood so they, they take blood, 
they filter out the white cells, they put the red cells back into you, they then refilter the white cells and they take out the monocytes and they take those monocytes and they train them, they grow them and they train them so that they're able to recognise the particular tumour that you have. And then they give you a, um, a little dose of a virus called Newcastle virus, and that then activates these dendritic cells when they're infused back into you. Um, it's been quite a bit of success with dendritic cell therapy uh, for people with um, melanomas and other kinds of tumours, and it's certainly something that's been more looked at. It's made from your um, from your body, so it's um, an autogenous um, vaccine, if you like, and uh, it is having some success. So I really would suggest that you explore that avenue. Hyperthermia and oncothermia are other avenues. Uh, we've talked about those on our show before. And once again, um, there are some sites on the internet that have very good information about those two heat processes. Also radiation therapy. Um, I think with the tumours like this, Jenny, it's good to have a very multi-pronged approach um, because the type of glioma cells that are actually in the brain um, that actually grow out of control are somewhat sort of star-shaped. And because of their shape, it's not so easy to target them um, with uh, many of the therapies that are in use today. Now, the dendritic cell therapy is one that can also do this. And um, for the targeting of this kind of tumour, uh, radiation has some very good aspects to it. Now, they can do something that's called conformal um, radiation therapy where actually you're only getting blasted in with the radiation in the area where you have the tumour. Um, some other things that are used, the, um, the anti-swelling techniques um, that are around, some of those are natural, some of them are like cortisone that you can use. Uh, but you do need to have the armory of a number of things and a, and a long kind of a walkway in when these things are introduced. Now, a lot of natural therapies do not work for brain tumours because of the thing called the blood-brain barrier, which is a selective membrane that stops various um, chemicals uh, natural and otherwise from getting into the brain. Uh, so some chemotherapies can cross the blood-brain barrier and certainly you should explore the use of a chemotherapy tablet called Temidal and um, I'd ask your oncologist um, about that. But yeah, this is one where you don't go uh, alternative at all because these brain tumours are quite aggressive and of course the earlier that you can get onto this, so much the better. Um, we have uh, another letter here. So uh, Jenny, by the way, if uh, you have any further questions around that or you have trouble accessing anything, don't hesitate to get back to me at the email you used before, institute at grayschooler.com. Um, I have another uh, email here from Sandy and Sandy um, actually comes from California and um, she was interested in my last show um, where I talked about some toxicities that had come via the use of apricot kernels and Sandy has actually related in her email to me 
she says, um, I've had a lot of liver problems and it hasn't been diagnosed. And I wondered whether I may have a similar situation to the person that you talked about in your last show. Now, this was a, a young lass who'd come to the Halvan Clinic. She'd been doing a lot of alternative medicine and uh, she had actually developed what's called a toxic liver. Now, one of the key things she was using was apricot kernels and uh, she was using also a lot of massage oils, aromatherapy oils, and about four or five other substances that could have been responsible also in a synergistic way uh, for causing her um, liver to become toxic. Now, Sandy, what we did in, in that case is uh, there were some ultrasounds actually done of the liver and some scans just to rule out that there was nothing going on um, in a cancer situation, um, a secondary situation. So after that was actually ruled out, there were some small biopsies taken of the liver. These were little puncture biopsies and um, they were very straightforward to do. Now, because of those biopsies, we were able to diagnose at the clinic that this young lass did indeed have a toxic liver problem. And we were able then to set about a treatment. Now, that was very important for her because had she come to the clinic and that not been identified, in other words, if it had not crescendoed up to quite a severe problem with very high markers, um, if she'd gone ahead and had a, a chemotherapy treatment um, or some other treatment that was quite uh, toxic to her system, she very quickly would have died. And in fact, uh, you may remember me saying um, on that show that this young lady probably would have died in a couple of weeks had she not visited the clinic and had this not been identified. So there's a lot around saying that, look, alternative um, therapies are safe. It all depends on the dose and it all depends on whether something is individually prescribed for you. So they are two rules of thumb that I always go by. Um, there's a law in pharmacy which is called the Arndt Schultz Law of Pharmacy. It's also used in homeopathy and it says that small amounts cure to large amount of any substance will create the opposite reaction in the same part of the body that you wanted to treat. So uh, small amounts good, basically, to large amounts can be a very big problem. So don't just think because it's alternative, because you got it from the naturopath or, you know, even because you're mixing a number of things together, that it is safe. So always best to check in and you can always check in with me too, Sandy, at that email address, institute at com. Uh, so they're the only two we have time for this week from the mailbox. Um, coming up after the break, we are going to take, as I said before, an in-depth look at, um, at cancer medicine and the metamorphosis that it's undergoing, and particularly from the mind-body medicine, nutritional medicine, integrative medicine point of view. And uh, we're going to come back and explore that issue because I believe that sometimes looking at the history of how we got to a certain point can really help us with the decisions that are made in current time. So we will be back shortly with Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Hello, we're back. I'm Grace Gawler and we are navigating the cancer maze from here on the sunny Gold Coast, actually, where it is Saturday morning um, and it's around about uh, 17 minutes after six. Um Please, if you have any questions that you'd like answered, drop me an email in the mailbox and I can address your questions on air if you prefer or if you'd also like me to respond individually, I'm also very happy to do that. Remember that email, institute at gracegawler.com. Now, we're going to get into um, the, uh, the more juicy bit today of uh, our discussion about cancer medicine and um, cancer patients undergoing this metamorphosis. So uh, in thinking about this, um, the rules have been changing over recent years. It's been a process, I think, that's happened around over four decades, uh, maybe a bit more. Uh, I think in looking back at this, its uh, roots are really in the freedom of the revolution that we saw in the 60s and the 70s. So uh, how did we get to this place from uh, the 60s and the 70s and what actually happened before that in cancer medicine? And indeed, what was the impact for cancer patients uh, from all of this and what is the impact now? So if we look at the history of medicine, I think there's always been uh, revolutions and there's always been evolutions. Um, is it important to explore? Well, yes, I think it is, because if we look back at history, uh, we can really take a lot of wisdom from that history and apply it into current day time. Um, if we just use current day time, we're actually uh, missing out on the steps that have enabled us to get to this point. And um, we'll come back to why that's so important a little bit later. But basically, when patients come to see me, 
Um, I run a consulting practice privately, as well as uh, having a practice uh, in Germany and taking patients to Germany. But I'm always interested to know what it is that drives my patients to make the choices that they do. And, you know, I see many well-educated and very intelligent people, um, very emotionally, I would say, intelligent people too, who make cancer treatment choices that are not actually congruent with who they appear to be. And uh, I know on this show quite a lot, I will be talking a middle path. Um, I'm certainly not a believer in an either-or situation in cancer because I think it does uh, not do the patient a lot of good also to be in that push-me-pull-you situation. So I guess if we're looking at somebody uh, quite famous um, that we could talk about in relation to this, Steve Jobs comes up as the best example. And I say this very respectfully because um, I don't know Steve Jobs. I've read a lot about Steve Jobs, but it would appear that we can learn a lot from his cancer experience. So uh, it was 2003, for those of you who, um, who don't remember the year, um, that Steve Jobs actually discovered that he had a pancreatic tumour. Now, this was a, a neuroendocrine tumour. That's a more rare type of um, tumour. It is an operable form of pancreatic cancer and uh, treatable. So it's interesting that somebody like Steve Jobs, that instead of immediately opting for a surgery that was potentially curative with post-treatment with it as well, that he actually chose a dietary approach to his cancer, although he'd been a dietary experimenter since university days. So it's well on the record that he did like to experiment. He was a part of that, um, that hippie era. He was a part of that um, evolution that came from uh, the 70s. And uh, he did try Eastern treatments, I believe, and he postponed his surgery for about nine months. So it wasn't until about 2004 when his approaches weren't working. And this is a very common thing, actually, in my uh, practice to find that people try something for a period of time. I've had 10 patients make inquiries just this week in this very same situation. Um, he decided that he would have the surgery and uh, he had prior to that also disclosed little about his health. So we then jump up to 2009. So he lived for quite a long time with this type of pancreatic cancer. And it was probably because of the type of um, cancer that it was and the surgery that he had that he did by time. However, he had a liver transplant uh, in 2009 because the tumour had spread. And uh, it was likely he was also battling at that point the immune suppression uh, drugs that are used after a liver transplant. So that has no doubt also complicated his cancer issues. So to get back to the crux of it, however, um, Jobs had a potentially treatable cancer. So why did he initially refuse treatment? Well, there's a few thoughts around this, and many of my patients tell me that uh, when they've been given a poor prognosis with a cancer like pancreatic cancer, that they know that the survival rate is, is very minimal and they feel like that they don't want to spend their, um, their final time, um, if that's the way it's going to be, 
uh, in a state of illness. So people with pancreatic cancer are very prone to turning to alternative treatments. And no doubt they can help to uh, offset some um, side effects from the cancer. They can get some level of well-being, but as we know in many cases that it's not actually going to impact the cancer, the sorts of lifestyle changes and alternative medicine that they're doing. Um, just incidentally, um, this is an education program, so I'll just explain these two different forms of pancreatic cancer. Um, one is called exocrine, and that's actually related to the glands that produce the enzymes that break down fats and proteins in your body. Endocrine pancreatic cancer, however, that, that one's associated with hormones like insulin that regulate sugar in the blood. So they have a, a, a different nature, a different beginning. Um, the endocrine pancreatic cancer that Steve Jobs had is rarer, but there are treatments for it, as we've just discussed. Um, I believe also that he went to Switzerland uh, in a last kind of a bid to help quell the cancer in 2008. So there were lots of things going on for Steve Jobs, like there are for many cancer patients. And I guess we'll never know the blow-by-blow um, the -blow Steve Jobs story in reality because it can be written or even biography, but um, there's nothing like the process of, of going through it to know what it's actually about. So we can only guess. Um, but I think Steve Jobs' story is a very, very useful one because it, I think it has the potential to enormously help patients in the decision-making processes around the treatment of cancer. Now, I'm all for freedom of choice, but uh, in many cases, cancer patients do choose ideological approaches to working with their cancer. And often, and this is the important bit, the, um, the choices that people make are often based on misinformed uh, stories, anecdotes, poorly researched data, um, cancer entrepreneurs who are out there full of theory, or even some scientists that are full of theory, but have actually not had much experience in the clinical or the day-to-day um, experience with cancer patients. So I think it comes down to the fact that, A, you've got to be very careful who you get your information from, um, what the source is, and I always suggest get second opinions medically, get second opinions from, from complementary practitioners, get them talking with each other. Now, that collaboration is actually very important. If your um, complementary or alternative practitioner won't talk or write to your medical practitioner, therein lies the problem and the gap, and you're not likely to get the best of care because that gap exists. Many patients fall in between that gap uh, and it does cause patients not to speak with their practitioners about the things that they're actually doing. And that can, of course, be to their own detriment. So in my uh, personal history, it's worthwhile saying that uh, I have had and know of, uh, there's three patients now um, who have had pancreatic cancer and who have survived and who have had um, the latter type, the um, exocrine, not the endocrine type of tumour. One lady who's actually still alive and in her 90s um, now, 
actually uh, came to me and the organisation I was working with back in the 80s with pancreatic cancer that had been diagnosed on biopsy that hadn't been removed surgically and uh, she's actually made it through. She did a lot of psychological work, that lady, and uh, a lot of her stress in her life was due to repressed grief where she had not... um, really done any work around the death, the suicide of her son. Um, She practiced a lot of stress management. She did some minor dietary adjustments. And it was interesting that after the surgery, where it was actually uh, very clearly identified what was happening and they couldn't remove anything because there was so much tumour, that after the surgery that she had a complete remission. Uh, This took uh, a period of, wasn't spontaneous, but it did take a period of around about six months. And uh, I'm going to have on the show someone who's going to be talking about remissions and how they can happen. It's well recorded in the literature that sometimes it's believed that surgery itself um, can instigate an immune response and help with the recovery from cancer. Now, that is in complete opposition to the folklore tale that says as soon as you open someone up, the, the air gets in and the cancer will gallop. Um, I think that's been well now proven to not be the case. And it's actually that is the reason why a lot of people um, don't have a biopsy. So, um, I think that is very archaic and needs to be certainly put out on the back burner um, that today surgical techniques and, and biopsy techniques are the best that we have. And I would suggest that anybody who's dealing with cancer don't shy away because of old ideologies and old folklore belief systems. So, uh, We are coming up for another break shortly. I'd just like to very briefly mention, um, we have a a fellow at the moment who I took to Germany in uh, July of this year, of 2012, and uh, he had about six weeks life expectancy with very advanced secondaries of pancreatic cancer in his abdomen. And uh, he'd been to a hospital in China and he is still at the Halvan Clinic um, coming into uh, December. So uh, he's had a very good experience. He's been very ill, but he's tolerated treatments and he just might be turning the, the corner to actually having a recovery. So that's the good news on pancreatic cancer. Always good to have some good news. And uh, I think we've always got to give some hope out there when we actually talk about the realities as well. We are going now for another break on navigating the cancer maze and we'll be back talking more about this topic of mind-body medicine and the evolution of cancer medicine. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. 
For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. tuned into navigating the cancer maze with your host grace goller we'd love to hear from you today on our program please call us toll free from north america at 1-866-472-5792 that's 1-866-472-5792 international callers may dial in to 480-553-5759 you may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Hi, we're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze and uh, carrying on from where we uh, finished off in our last session. Uh, just to reiterate the message, don't delay diagnosis and don't delay treatment if you've been diagnosed with cancer. Um, one of the other issues we have with many of the alternative approaches is by the time you've waited and by the time you've tried these things that your cancer may be growing and actually may be spreading. And um, a lot of people actually could have cancer treated um, if it was diagnosed early enough. We're going to see very big changes. I mean, the future for cancer is that it will be treated, I think, and we're seeing this now, in very much a spot treatment fashion. Um, where someone's clear for a few years, something comes back again, um, they're treated with a bit of radiation or a new antibody, it goes away or it's managed. And so people now can live a lot longer with cancer uh, than previously and more so with some of the cancers. Lung cancer is probably the one that's been the most challenging, but we know that has a definite cause and um, and smoking and uh, other pollutants, things like asbestos and even things like coal dust um, can have an impact on that. And what is happening um, is that we are getting DNA damaged by environmental pollutants, uh, things that would have taken a long time in the past in the body with ageing and lack of uh, repair of our DNA has now changed. So we're on fast forward. Um, with cancer and um, the acceleration of ageing in many aspects too, which I guess is interesting seeing everyone's trying to do anti-ageing and um, preserve their body for as long as possible from the outside. But um, the inside is still in there and it's still doing its thing. And I'd just like to, uh, for someone who hasn't listened to uh, any previous programs, just bring up uh, a couple of uh, programs that are very useful in terms of what we're talking about today. And I think uh, the don't delay diagnosis and treatment message is very clear from Fran Drescher's story. And um, you can interview, you can access rather the interview um, I did with Fran. I think it was replayed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It was a very good interview which really touches on these subjects of environmental issues and um, her excellent organisation, the Cancer Schmancer Movement, which is actually um, doing some fantastic work in bringing awareness and education um, to uh, particularly women with cancer. Uh, You can uh, find that interview as 
and MP3 on the sidebar of the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel website where you're listening to this program. So if you just uh, click on those little side arrows, uh, you'll bring up all of the interviews. The other one that's very relevant to what we're discussing at the moment is my interview with Dr. Ray Hammond from RGCC USA. Now, RGCC um, works with genetics. They work through a laboratory in Greece uh, where molecular and genetic medicine um, happens and uh, there's amazing diagnoses uh, through genetics that are going on through that particular organisation, RGCC. Uh, circulating tumour stem cells are one of the things that RGCC is particularly interested in. Now, this comes into the early diagnosis, and uh, I suggest you go back and have a listen to that interview on the sidebar as well. But basically, we know that when a tumour is more than uh, about two millimetres in size, that it actually can produce and put into circulation what we call circulating tumour stem cells. Now, those are cells that have the ability to recreate themselves in other parts of the body. Some may be destroyed by the immune system. Some may get away. And uh, we want to have the least of those actually getting away and uh, causing problems. And it's one of the reasons for first-line chemotherapy, in fact, after you've had surgery. There is a good rationale for it uh, because that we know and we've known for many, many decades that these cells have gotten away um, and into the circulation and into other tissues and organs. Now, that can be a very scary thought, and I think um, with any awareness, one has to do education as well. Um, but the best education here is the early detection. Um, can we prevent cancer? Yeah, we can in some ways, but in the environmental polluted world that we live in, many of the patients that I see have been strict vegetarians, strict vegans, I've done all sorts of exotic things. I have exercise therapists. I've had uh, Tour de France cyclists. Uh, I've had all kinds of people uh, leading very healthy and very active lives uh, still succumbing to um, cancer, some perhaps through their own genetics, but also through the type of lifestyle that we actually do lead today. Um, so I think knowing this information, uh, when people come to see me and they say, well, look, I'm early in diagnosis, I'm considering not having surgery and trying some alternative treatments, um, I tell them about circulating tumour stem cells and I tell them about the necessity of doing something early so that at least that you're stopping those cells from going out into circulation. And... Um, a lot of people, when they have this informed knowledge, make a different choice. And this is all about choices. And um, I think it's really important that whenever we're talking about cancer, that you have the right information. And people often say, well, where do we get that right information? We've said it before. You have to shop around. You have to ask doctors. You have to ask oncologists. You have to educate yourself. But not so much that you actually become so self-empowered um, and uh, so self-reliant that you think you're, uh, you know, an oncologist or a molecular biologist overnight, because that doesn't happen, and that can be a really dangerous thing as well. So there's balancing balancing all things. Um, Let's look a little bit at the history now of uh, the mind-body medicine in particular because also that helps us to understand why we make these choices in healthcare. 
new cancer consciousness, I believe, as I said before, swept the globe in the 70s. And I was a part of that movement, actually. Um, it brought fresh light in that time, not only to the treatment of cancer, but also now the patient's role in the treatment of their cancer was highlighted. And that really hadn't happened before. There was more like, well, I take my body to the doctor and, um, <clears throat> you know, I present it to you and you fix it. And if I needed any help with my psychology, I might go off and, um, and see a shrink or um, go and get some psychological help or counselling. They were very separate entities. And then we started to see these things actually coming together. Um, we then started to see in the, the 70s and the 80s new words, new phrases, uh, nutritional in medicine, nutritional environmental medicine, uh, integrative medicine, holistic medicine. Um, so there was this new entity that was actually being being born. And much of this was actually being fueled by the cancer patient movement. So that's interesting in itself that cancer was actually a part of the changing of that consciousness. Um, patients began for some reason uh, back in those days, they wanted to know more. They wanted to have access to alternatives. They wanted to make their own decisions and um, they felt like they wanted to be in charge of their own bodies. But in 2012, this new wave of medicine is unfortunately meeting some challenges. And the question begs, as I'm often saying um, in my talks around the place, has the pendulum swung too far the other way? So, you know, from my perspective as a health practitioner and having worked with now 14,000 plus patients over 38 years, um, I'm seeing a new phenomena and I'm seeing that self-empowerment for cancer patients is now leading some patients and even in my practice many patients when they actually come to me um, towards self-destruction and I can't believe that that's actually happening in the small time frame that I've really been involved um, in, in this um, work in cancer medicine and it's been happening because there's too little knowledge about cancer and how it behaves um, I think cancer societies may not be reaching the majority of the population with the information of the current time as to what they need to actually make their choice. Uh, big Pharma is always getting bad press and uh, patients are really leaning into more of this ideological way of dealing with their cancer, a la the Steve Jobs that we talked about before. So, uh, yeah, it's a big surprise for me um, because I was at the vanguard of this mind-body movement in the 70s and I decided uh, with looking at this, this week's show that I would go back and have a look at some of my old studies um, because, it, you know, it was interesting. Back then I didn't have much life experience and uh, it was all very interesting, that stuff, but, you know, how did the history actually relate? And uh, we've had a lot of... Um, information about this coming up in our news in Australia recently. You know, where does integrative medicine fit in? Where did it come from? How did it happen? Um, so why are people wanting to go back to natural remedies? One concerning thing is also it's not about people going back to natural remedies, but people um, come to me with no pain management 
because they're terrified of pharmaceuticals. And I see people in horrendous pain who come into the practice who are trying to meditate it away and trying to do all these other therapies, um, acupuncture, all kinds of things, but they have unrelenting cancer pain. They can't sleep, therefore their, um, their biological, their hormone clocks are disturbed and they're trying to do their cancer treatment naturally. So um, that's an obvious one of what we can do for that. But, you know, I was brought up in the, the scientific uh, and thinking diet of, let's say, of Professor Julius Sumner Miller. And uh, he, he was my hero when I was a, a nerdy little kid. And um, his famous TV show was called Why Is It So? And I'm still asking that question. So uh, I think if we look back and we can look at the more recent times in the 1600s, um, we're going to be able to find the philosophical change, which this was the significant one, which changed the way that medicine was practiced. And perhaps that's why we're coming back to seeing the pendulum at full swing. So we're going to come back after the break now and we're going to talk a little bit about a famous French philosopher called René Descartes who was at the forefront of the change of separating the mind from the body. So we will be back shortly in Navigating the Cancer Maze. Time to uh, have a quick break, maybe even make a cuppa, and we'll be back very soon. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Guller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Hi, I'm Grace Goller, and we're back with our final segment of the show today in approaching the question, why is it so? Why do people make the choices that they make um, in cancer medicine? And we've talked about Steve Jobs earlier and uh, a few other people um, that have made those kinds of choices. And we've looked at people who have made different choices. And um, 
I'd like to talk about uh, Rene Descartes because in uh, looking at what happened with mind body medicine we see that through through the cultures through the ages you know even back to the greeks they believed that the body influenced the mind and the mind influenced the body uh, indigenous cultures had a slightly different take on it they believed that demons were the cause of illness and if you could drive out the demons that that would be the solution we've been through medical bloodletting um, in believing that that was going to be the panacea for all ills. So this has been a very checkered history, in fact, um, through health. But one of the most significant changes was actually uh, René Descartes, whose most famous uh, statement, I think, was, he said, I think, therefore I am. He had a huge influence on medicine. Um, this was in the 1600s, um, and it was a big philosophical change um, he was a philosopher and he became known for what we know today as Cartesian thinking. Um, he focused on what we call dualism. Now, he defined the mind um, in a different way. He saw it as quite separate from the body and from self-awareness. Um, he was the first to really form and formulate what we call a mind-body problem, which has actually carried through today and still exists in medicine where if the, the, the soul was sick, it was sent off to the um, person of religion. If the mind was sick, you were sent to the psychiatrist or someone that dealt in mental health. And if you had a sick body, um, it was the job of the physician to actually look at the body. But this is where the disconnection actually happened on a very large scale and has shaped today what um, we see quite often in medicine. Now, medicine starting to come back full circle as well, and um, it's starting to get over this dualistic approach um, that we had from Descartes. Now, Freud was one of the people who really challenged the um, Descartes theory. And um, as you know, Freud was involved in a lot of um, a lot of the psychological uh, and the psycho-emotional sides of illness. So he was very clearly seeing that there was an impact, that there was something going on between mind and body. Um, shell shock, I guess, is another example uh, where you have a physical illness that's caused by psychological factors. And that was well known and studied um, due to the war issues that we have had on this planet. Um, so having had our roots in this area, um, it's interesting to look at where we've come to today. So if we look from Descartes forward, um, a lot of the, uh, the mysticism went away from physical medicine. And uh, in doing that, we've come through to today where we've got the, um, the, the whole situation has turned in, in the evolution and we're now going back and saying, well, the mind is connected to the body. The body is connected to the mind. And yes, the spirit actually has something to do with this. Um, so science, unfortunately, has overlooked the emotion as the source of a person's true being. And we find this very beautifully written, actually. Um, a book, if you're interested in this, a book um, that I can highly recommend is Antonio 
Damasio's book called Descartes' Era was written back in the 90s, I think. Um, he was a professor and a neurologist, and he had spent a lot of time researching and studying the brain. And he actually came to the decision with his research that a person's emotions do in fact rule the individual. So that's rather important if we're looking at um, solutions in cancer medicine. It's important in looking at what's going on and why people make the choices that they do and perhaps even why there's an aversion to actually looking at the, the realities and um, what we see in conventional medicine. So to bring that to a, to a crux, because we started off talking about uh, Steve Jobs' experience as a, like a test case, um, but we can actually see that the decisions that are made by patients actually may have more emotional drivers than logical drivers. And that answers that why is it so question, I think, for me, quite beautifully. And I know we've done this in a very brief time for a very large subject. But it is one of the things that I have pondered upon um, at great length because I do see people who are making choices and I think, well, why have they made that choice? There's a treatment option here that actually would work for them. And yet they've gone off in the other direction and... Um, they're following some kind of an, an ideology. So we come down basically to today where we've got two medical uh, models that we can talk about. Um, one is called the biomedical model and the other is the biopsychosocial model. So we've got another set of uh, definitions. Um, and in talking about these, uh, we're really looking at, again, the influence of our uh, social status the influence of our psychological status, the influence of our emotional status, and the influence of our, our spirit status. And we have talked a lot about this on past programs. And uh, just a reminder here, the program with Emmett Miller, where we talked about curing and healing, would be very well worth your while going back and listening to, um, because in that episode, we actually talked about the importance of the engaging of the spirit, the engaging of the spirit, which really does help to turn around and give expectations of, of, of outcomes that are just so much greater than they would have been had someone just had their medical treatment alone. And I've seen that time and time again. So we're looking here um, at no either or. We're looking at a way of approaching medicine in a middle path so that you can do some complementary, maybe even some alternative. But please, if it's an alternative to me, that usually applies either or. Um, but alternative medicine also gets a little bit misquoted at times. Um, and if you're doing your conventional therapies, really important, as we said before, to get your practitioners in communication with each other. Now, this may be a challenge but it can be done. And um, I've got the proof of the pudding in this, in fact, because it's something that I started doing back in the 80s, was communicating every time I saw a cancer patient and I was suggesting various therapies, I would write to their practitioners, to their oncologists, to their radiation oncologists, the chemotherapist. And I would say, 
this is what I'm doing to help this person psychologically and emotionally. And uh, in the beginning, I, I didn't get too many letters back, I must admit. But once they had seen uh, the outcomes of the people who were uh, coming along with my therapies, they would say, hmm, we've actually seen five, six, ten of your patients now, and they do seem to be doing better than we would have expected. And that way it really did open up a channel of communication and it made it easier for other patients here, particularly in Australia. Um, I'm unsure in America where that sits right now and uh, if anyone would like to write to me and uh, tell me about that, I'd be delighted to know what it's like on the home territory for people in the USA. But I always say to my patients, if I go to the races, the horse races, um, I never bet for just the winner. I always have an each way bet. And uh, in the, my own history, uh, I think I've uh, very clearly demonstrated that. And uh, I was going to today talk about a very personal history that's had a lot of publicity in Australia, but uh, time doesn't permit. What I would like to do, we are going to take that up in another program, but I would like to refer you to my personal website, and that's gracegawlerinstitute.com. Gracegawlerinstitute is all one word, .com. Um, if you go to that website, you will find um, a section on the, in the menu called Ian Gawler Cure. And uh, this story has been a very integral part of my life. Uh, and it's, it's a story that actually exemplifies the need for proper diagnosis and um, the need for the right information for making decisions. And um, I'll leave you to go to that and do a little swat up, a little study before we come back for next week's session of Navigating the Cancer Maze. Um, it does highlight also that medical journals also get it wrong. Doctors also get it wrong as well. But somewhere in the middle of this, we need to find the truth for the betterment of cancer patients. And we can make the best of it drawing from the past and understanding why we are at this place where we're at and using the best of both sides of medicine and reintegrating the mind and the body and the spirit and the spirit and the mind and the body into the new wave of personalised cancer medicine. So that's all for this week. Um, you can always contact me uh, on the email institute at gracegawler.com and do check out the website. We'll be back next week with more of Navigating the Cancer Maze. Have a great week. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone.